Welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is the first podcast episode for 2017, so Happy New Year to you. I hope you had a good break over Christmas and the New Year, and I, and I hope you're looking forward to a great year ahead. Here in Australia, it's summer. It's a time when a lot of people are on holidays, people are outside, enjoying time with family and friends. Work-wise, it can be a quiet time, and people say, I think half-jokingly, that Australia shuts down from Melbourne Cup Day, which is in early November, to Australia Day, which is in late January. Uh, I don't think it's as quite as bad as that, and uh, I've certainly noticed that uh, people are back at their desks now, uh, based on the volume of email and phone calls and other communication that I've been having in the last week or so. Um, but it is the time that uh, a lot of Australia is on holiday, and it's also the time that a lot of people are doing planning and strategizing and thinking about the year ahead and looking back at the year that's just gone by. So what did you think of 2016? I've heard some people say there was a horrible year, they want to kick you to the curb and start all over again. And you know, that's interesting. I think that uh, everybody at various times of their life goes through good and bad times. They have good years and bad years. And uh, when I talk to people who say it's been a bad year or a horrible year, um, often they're talking about things that are completely external. They're talking about things like Brexit or Donald Trump winning the presidential election and they don't support him. Or they talk about so many celebrities dying in 2016. I think that's interesting because if you define your year by what happens uh, with events that are outside your control, uh, I think it's going to be quite challenging because uh, sometimes you'll have a good year, sometimes you'll have a bad year, and you've got no control over that. And personally for me, uh, 2016 was a great year, uh, professionally and personally. And I'm just talking about my life, of course, and, and uh, the, the way that it, it affected the people around me and uh, that the way I was able to influence other people in my personal and professional life. And I think it was an interesting year when you look at external events. And uh, for us living in Western countries, we're looking at uh, the Western world and Western democracies and what's happening in the rest of the Western world generally, and not necessarily looking at the world as a whole, and we saw things like Brexit, and we saw things like the the rise of Donald Trump, and I think these are big jolts in the world, certainly the Western world, and there were actually things that ran against the trend, and people generally don't like change, especially when it's uh, overturning something that, that's been in place for a long time, is overturning long-held beliefs. So, for example, if you look at Donald Trump winning the US presidential election, and, and I don't want to make this political at all, but if you look at some of the things that happened, many of the the old established hierarchies didn't work and were wrong. So mass media predictions were wrong. Pollsters were wrong. Um, he lost all the TV debates, which used things like old media. And, and yet Trump used a number of other tools. So he used Twitter a lot, just like Barack Obama did very successfully to win his first presidential election. Um, and then his opponent, Hillary Clinton, uh, did really well with mass media and mainstream media, but she was caught on YouTube calling voters racist, sexist, and xenophobic. And I'm sure that contributed to her losing the election as well. And in, in almost every way, Trump positioned himself as, as breaking down the old guard and ushering in a new era. Now, that's what he said, and uh, what politicians say and what they actually do are two totally different things. So we've yet to see what he will do, but certainly in what he said, he was talking about toppling icons, breaking down hierarchies, breaking down the establishment. 
happened. And the result came as a surprise to a lot of people. And to be honest, it was a bit of a surprise to me as well. I wasn't expecting this to happen so soon at the political level and especially in a Western country. Because in Western countries we do have such entrenched and established hierarchies in politics and governance and democracies. So definitely expected it in other areas where there's a possibility that technology in particular can have a huge impact like education, health and professional services. But even in those areas, in established nations, uh, Western countries or well-established hierarchies, it takes longer for that penetration to happen because there's so much inertia. Uh, so it's easier when there isn't an established hierarchy. So some parts of Asia, South America and Africa are going ahead in leaps and bounds, actually leapfrogging us because they don't have to fight against those hierarchies. Um, so it's interesting to see things like this happening in the Western world and in politics, which generally isn't as easy to disrupt with technology. So what does this all mean? I reckon just like everywhere else, our world is changing in terms of politics and society as well. And we definitely need strong leadership to navigate this change. You've probably seen it in your industry, you've seen it in other industries, and now we're seeing it in society as a whole. So if you want to know whether you're fit for the future, start by asking yourself whether you're ready to change. And change is happening all the time, it's happening all around us. Some people manage change better than others. And in my presentations, I often talk about five levels of change. So I'd like to take you through that today before we get on to our, our guest interview, the, the main interview for this podcast episode. In fact, I'm going to share with you an extract from a webinar that I presented a couple of months ago. Uh, it's a recording of that webinar where I take people through an exercise looking at how you manage change and how you approach change and as a result, how fit are you for our future, where we've got fast change and never-ending change. So, let's listen to that now. Uh, so, what I'd like you to do is think about uh, a situation that you had recently where there was some change in your life. And let's say your professional life. Uh, and what I'd like you to think about is how you dealt with that change. So, some change that happened um, and how do you deal with it. So, if I'd write it down uh, because I'd like you to just make a small commitment to to how you dealt with the change. I'm not going to ask you to share how you dealt with it because I reckon there are five ways that people deal with change. The, the way you deal with change will affect how innovative you are and how open you are to innovation in your team. Um, so let me talk about those five ways and let, let me give you an example. So one of the biggest changes that's happened now is everyone's mobile. People are walking around with mobile phones in their hands all the time. I was going to say pockets and wallets, but now they're in their hands all the time. So that's a big change that's happened, and it affects a lot of businesses. Um, let me give you an example of how two cafes uh, address that issue. So one was a cafe which was in Terrigal, just north of Sydney in New South Wales, and the manager there got really upset because people were on their phone when he was trying to chat to them and he was trying to take their order. So he put this sign up on the on the counter, on the cash register, 50 cents surcharge for being on the phone at the counter, it's rude. Okay, so he, he realized that there was something that had changed and he decided to penalize people for that because he couldn't, um, he couldn't have a chat to them like he normally did and they were holding up other people in the line. That's one approach. Another approach is Nino. So Nino runs a little cafe down the road from where I live in, in Leaderville in Perth, and he also came across this same situation. People were walking to the cafe with their mobile phones in their hand, and he took a different approach. So he teamed up with the people at Rewardle, and he set up this like coffee loyalty system. So he's got this little tablet uh, screen, and I've got an app on my phone, and I can go in, and every time I order a coffee, I hold the phone up to the screen, and it records it. And uh, when I get 10 coffees, 
coffees uh, when I bought 10 coffees I get a free coffee I can even load it up with uh, with cash so I pay him cash and then the app knows that I've paid I've got $50 credit so I don't need to carry cash around with me okay so these are two people who saw exactly the same situation exactly the same change in their life and they approached it completely differently and, and what about you so let me talk about those five levels of change and I'd like you to to think about um, going back to that situation I asked you to talk about uh, to write down earlier uh, which of these five categories you fall into and you might like to give yourself a bit of a score so the scoring system is just for a bit of fun but um, there, I reckon there are five ways to deal with change number one which is not very good which is why I've given it a minus ten is to ignore the change so just pretend it hasn't happened so some people do that and they don't last very long, especially in a fast-changing world where everyone's exposed because we've got a flat world, then people who ignore change don't last very long. You can resist the change. So this is what the cafe manager at uh, the cafe in Terrigal did. So this is disturbing the status quo. So I'm going to resist it by creating some sort of system or process that will restore the status quo. I don't think that's very good. Um, but it can work for a short time. I hope you're not in that category. Uh, the next one, which is we're now moving into the positive areas, is to adapt to the change or manage the change. So if you're running a cafe, the way if you fell into this category, what you do is you train your staff that if there are people on their phone at the counter, then you politely serve the person behind them until this person's ready. Okay, so no disruption, you just find a way, you find a workaround, you find a plan B. And that's okay, and that's why I've given it a plus two, but it's even better if you can embrace the change. So this is what Nino did. Nino said, oh, the people using their phones, instead of seeing it as a problem or a, an annoyance, he saw it as an opportunity. So use the change to, to improve your systems, your business, your organization, your team. Um, and the last one, if you can, is to lead the change. So actually be the, pe the person or the business that creates the change and then can lead it. So that's why given that the highest rating. So I reckon you're going to fall into one of those five categories. And now, the moment of truth, let me ask you, how did you deal with that change? So you wouldn't have used these five words because I hadn't told you what the words were. But if I ask you now to think about um, which category your action fit into for uh, for that question um, then which of them would it fit into okay so I hope you found it interesting to figure out where you are in terms of how open you are to change and whether you're willing to embrace or even lead change rather than simply ignoring it or neglecting it or just trying to get back to the status quo so let's move on to our feature interview, because in this episode, I'm speaking with leadership expert Charles Coves, and we're talking about leadership passion. I've known Charles for a long time, and I've always been impressed by his passion for, well, passion itself. And in this conversation, we turn this passion lens to leadership. And Charles has some really interesting ideas and some interesting insights, and in some ways, some contrarian ideas. So, so listen up, because I'm sure that you'll get some great insights on how to be a better leader. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira, and today I'm speaking with Charles Coves, who's an expert in passion, in motivation, in leadership, and in team building. I've known Charles for a long time. He is a keynote speaker, he's a seminar facilitator, he's a mentor coach, and he's a published author. And he helps businesses, organizations, and individuals build passion, motivation, and become better leaders. And uh, we were just chatting before we started this conversation, and Charles was saying that, that he's a failure. So, uh, well, Welcome, Charles, first. Thank you, Gihan. So let's, let's talk about that. So let's talk a little bit about your background and tell me why you think you're a failure. Well, for 20 years, I was a solicitor, tax practitioner, tax lawyer in Australia and overseas and a 
and a successful one. And in 1993, I changed career to become Australasia's passion provocateur. And at that time, I was quite dismayed by the lack of passion in the business world and generally. And I'm a failure because after 22 years of doing this work, whilst more people are at least talking about passion, I still find only a tiny minority of people demonstrate that they're passionate about their work. Hence, I'm a failure because because my passion message, whilst making an impact, is making nowhere near the impact that I want it to make. Well, I, I think you're being a bit hard on yourself, Charles, because I, I reckon that um, possibly 20 years ago, topics like passion were just not really talked about in uh, in organisations, especially corporate, uh, big corporates. But now it seems that even if people don't use the word passion, they certainly use terms like employee engagement, don't they? Absolutely. And there is no doubt in 1993, when I started talking about passion, almost everybody equated passion with sex, with making love. Mm. And that has been a significant impact. To that extent, I'm a success because people don't think of passion and sex as the same thing. Now, interestingly, you say that major corporates are starting to buy into this idea. I'm seeing more references to passion in large corporate advertising. And even in yesterday's financial review, PricewaterhouseCoopers has announced that it is allowing its staff to run their own what they call passion projects. They have found that their consultants become better consultants when they are in the hurly-burly of business running entrepreneurial projects, pursuing their passion so that they can give better advice to their clients. So I approached PricewaterhouseCoopers, I would say, about 19 years ago. So finally, they're starting to get serious about it. (laughs) And when you say passion projects, do you mean something that's completely peripheral and secondary to what they're doing at work? Or is it like Google's 20% time where you get time to do stuff that's kind of related to Google, but it's something that you're interested in? No, totally peripheral to their work, Hmm. done in their spare time. And so... Uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers would ask their staff to give away all such enterprises. Now they're encouraging it because it changes the thinking of their staff, but they're not giving them time off during their work week like Google. Okay, so that's interesting because it seems that one of the big shifts that's happening in the workplace, you hear this a lot with Gen Y's millennials um, or even with the Gen Zs, is that they actually want work that gives them meaning not just money, and they, they work is just one part of their life and they're not necessarily willing to give up other parts of their life just to go to work and earn a dollar. Yes, I would agree with that on the first hand. On the second, the reason why you kindly say I'm being too harsh on myself but in the question of being a failure, um, I think it's a failure of leadership because it's the leader that creates the meaning from the work. Mm. And if leaders were better at creating meaning, then their Gen Y employees would be far more engaged. Now, Dihan, you also need to know that I'm an expert on Gen Ys. I have raised four of them, (laughs) four Gen Y children, and I have a a Gen M, a millennial generation child. So my children range from 34 down to five. So I understand how these Gen Y people think. I had lots of dealings with them and I put it fair and square on the table that they are just as passionate, just as committed as any other generation. What they haven't done is they have been far more intelligent in not just buying into a job just for the money. And that is a very sensible thing to do. 
Yeah, and I agree. I love Gen Ys. I love interacting with them, and I I love the energy and the, the belief that anything is possible that uh, when I'm around them. So, um, yep, I love that. In in terms of passion, Charles. So you mentioned the word passion. Um, I mentioned the phrase employee engagement. Another word that's used a lot is motivation. Tell me how those three things fit together. Well, my definition of passion, and I do consider myself one of the world's experts on the matter. I have focused on it for 22 years. That necessarily encompasses motivation and staff engagement. My definition of passion, it's a source of unlimited energy from your soul that enables you to produce extraordinary results. So think passion, think energy. It's not a mental resource. So that's the first thing. The reason why passion is so important is because it's a soul or spiritual energy, it gives you a clue to your meaning as a human being. We mentioned meaning earlier. The big question that I pose to my audiences is why are you on the planet? In 100 years' time, you and I are dead. What's the meaning? What's the purpose of why we are here? And our passion is a clue to that meaning, to that purpose of our lives. What I have found is if on a day-to-day basis we have some idea of why we are here, life becomes a magnificent game. Now, when we don't know what our purpose is, then we're like a ship with sails with no rudder because we have no direction. Now, motivation is the desire to be motoring, to be in action. If we're confused about what we want to do, motivation is low. Staff engagement is when I am engaged in the corporation with which I'm working or to whom I'm contributing my services. And how engaged am I at a soul level in the meaning of the work of that corporation? And what happens is if that engagement is at a high level, then it unleashes my energy. And the link, there's a direct correlation between passion, energy, productivity, and Australia's GDP, gross domestic product. If you look at the business press, it's all about how do we increase productivity. My proposition is the the greater the staff engagement generated from passion and meaning, the greater will be my productivity and the greater will be the, the production from that enterprise, hence Australia's and the world's GDP improves. Yeah, look, that's really fascinating, Charles, because there are lots of people talking about productivity and performance, but they they generally tend not to start from passion and purpose. They tend to look at what's happening in the environment. Um, but you, I think what you're saying is that you'll get better results if you go back to the source, which is the passion and purpose of the people. Absolutely. I think it's totally misguided that increased productivity will come from improved technology and waste and all of that, I have found, and and my model for leadership is being a great parent. There are over 1,000 published models of leadership. I think if you're a good parent, you would be a good leader. And what a leader has to do is to get his people to contribute their natural innovation and creativity. And a parent with a child... Every child born on the planet is insanely creative and innovative. We have these skills, Gihan. Whenever we're driving to work, we are thinking in innovative ways. 
if we are blocked in some way. We're constantly thinking, how can I do this with less effort? And what I have found is that most leaders fail to get this inherent genius out of their employees. That's where the productivity, the greatest productivity gains come from. And it comes from a desire of people to give what they're capable of giving that they were born with. Okay, so I'm curious whether you think, Charles, it does have to start from leaders and leaders have to know their passion and purpose first before they work with their employees or is it something that happens with teams that they all go along on the journey at the same time? Well, inherent in my philosophy is this question of responsibility. My question to you is, and to anyone listening to this conversation, who is responsible for Australia's future or whatever country you are living in because I know you've got a wonderful network globally, Who is responsible for the country's future in which you live? And the answer is, you are. The person listening to this conversation. I am responsible for Australia's future. I am responsible for the future of the planet. So to answer your question, any employee at any level in any organisation listening to this is personally responsible for helping their leaders become better leaders. And most people simply give up. They don't want to take that responsibility. And whilst I, whilst I put the responsibility and the accountability on the leaders, every person can start on this journey and liberate the human spirit, liberated by helping leaders to become better leaders. And many leaders don't even know why they're not getting the results they want because their team members are scared to speak up. Mm-hmm. Now, this responsibility issue, Gihan, this fear, I am in the business of liberating people from their fear. And what, when you are passionate, fear plays a much smaller part in your decision-making than it otherwise would. And that's, that's a wonderful way to live. You wake up in the morning, you're not consumed by fear, stress, anxiety, worry. You wake up and you go, wow, I wonder what the world has got in store for me today while I'm pursuing a life that has meaning for me. Right. Now, there's something I'm a bit curious about, Charles, and I'm sure you've had this question many times before, but I've always wondered, what if you don't know what your passion is? What if you don't know what your purpose is? I'm sure there are many people wandering through life not quite knowing what their passion and purpose are. So does that mean that you need to find that out first uh, before you can actually contribute effectively or what if you don't know that can you still can you still be effective in the workplace or in life without knowing your passion or true purpose well many people don't know what their purpose is and they've forgotten what their passion is or they've not given themselves permission to pursue their purpose because they can't they think they can't make money out of it now there are two elements of this i have a two-page document discovering your passion in 17 steps that I'm happy to share with with whoever wants it, Gihan, as, as a gift. Um, these 17 steps for people who want to find their passion are practical ways to do this exercise. Now, in the workspace, there are two elements to passion. One is you are passionate about your work. The second alternative is that you are not passionate about your work, but you are passionate about what the income from your work enables you to pursue, which may be traveling the world. Your passion might be travel. You might be a budding travel writer. 
when you make the link between the income from your work and how it enables you to pursue your passion, you know what happens? Magically, you suddenly become passionate about the work that you're doing because you link it to your passion. So that's the big overview. They're the two types. And I have worked with many teams when I do team building programs in companies, and I help people make that link which unleashes this enormous reservoir of energy. The metaphor that I use to show that is like an Olympic athlete or an athlete striving to get to the Olympics who hates the training but is passionate about being an Olympian. That's the metaphor. Sometimes you have to go through difficult times, difficult work to be able to pursue your true passion. And I encourage everybody to take that step. If you don't know what your passion is, and remember that your passion is a clue to your purpose, if you don't know what it is, then I suggest you start doing some work in finding that passion because my promise to anybody is if you discover your passion, life changes magically. And how do I mean it changes magically? You wake up. And there's a beautiful Buddhist saying that really encompasses the value Before enlightenment, chopping wood, carting water. After enlightenment, chopping wood, carting water. Mm. In other words, when you wake up, you are still doing the same thing, but you have a totally different experience despite doing the same thing. Life changes. Yeah, in fact, I heard somebody just today, Charles, in a podcast I was listening to saying that they try to get people to the point where they wake up with joy in their heart, not a pit in their stomach. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. And the, and the reason why passion kills fear is because passion comes from your soul or spirit. Fear comes from your mind. And the battle of ideas, the battle of emotions inside us is between love from the soul and fear from the mind. When you come from passion, you are accessing the loving parts of you and the more passion you have in your life, the less you will allow fear from your mind to dominate your consciousness. So it's interesting, Charles. I can I can imagine a lot of people listening to this who are employees within organizations saying, fantastic, yes, this is exactly what I've been looking for, somebody who says, let me follow my passion. But I can also imagine on the other side of that coin, there are leaders and managers going, we just don't have time for that. Do your passion on your own time. We don't have time for it. And even if they kind of believe the idea, they believe that um, it can't be done right now. We're too busy right now. What do you say to that? I would say one thing, ask your team members, what do we do in this place that kills your passion? Mm. So don't do anything, just ask that question and eliminate the passion killers. And that does not take time, number one. Number two, to the extent that it does take time, the ROI will be at least 10 times what you invest in getting rid of passion killers. So when the leaders ask a question, the, the question from the employee's perspective is, will anything happen with the feedback that I give? Mm, exactly. so, so in most cases, employees give feedback and nothing happens or nothing apparent happens. And my message on that is simply persist. You know, the mere fact that you've put a suggestion up 
to your leader and nothing has happened doesn't mean that it's not a good suggestion. It does mean that leaders have too much on their plate, as you say. And what I have found is that new ideas require persistence. Once again, my favourite story on this is imagine being at the supermarket with a three-year-old and you're at the checkout counter, it's five o'clock in the afternoon, and the three-year-old says, Mum, Dad, can I have a chocolate bar? And you say no, and the three-year-old says, OK. That never happens. What a three-year-old does is start to negotiate, start to manipulate, start to persist, start to throw tantrums to get what the three-year-old wants. My advice is, consistent with the Bible, is to be like little children sometimes. Sometimes you need to behave like a little child and stick at something and persist and ask and keep putting the suggestions because that's the way change happens. Jack Welsh, former CEO of GE, his standard strategy when anybody gave him a new idea was to reject the idea. Why do you think that was, Gihan? I don't know. Maybe he wanted them to test it and find out whether they were really committed to it. That's exactly right. Ideas are a dime a dozen, but people who are passionate about pursuing those ideas and getting them implemented, they are the ideas that he pursued. There's another big issue here with ideas and suggestions that people might have for improving a workplace, and that's this. It doesn't matter what we do, and this is another big idea that I have found changes lives. It doesn't matter what you do, there will be benefits and there will be drawbacks. It is not possible for you to implement change without drawbacks. The trouble with most ideas and employees who come up with ideas is that they ignore the drawbacks and only focus on the benefits. What a leader has to do is to teach his team members how to put up an idea. So often in my seminars, I will run a session on how do you get good ideas. And Jack Welsh would do the same thing. He would go back to them and say, Righto, tell me what the benefits are of your idea and tell me the drawbacks, tell me the cost, tell me the energy, tell me the time that needs to be put into this, and then we will consider it. But you go away and do that hard thinking. Don't do what Harvard Business Review talks about of putting the monkey on my back and then blaming me for not implementing your suggestions. And that changes the dynamics where team members and leaders become part of a team desiring to make the organisation more successful, fulfil its purpose and not a culture of conflict where the employee puts suggestions up and the boss says, we can't do that. No, that kills passion because... It does not honour what the employee wants, but the employee has to learn about the pressures that are on the whole business. Yeah, and as you were saying that, Charles, I think I just had a light bulb moment because you said every every change has benefits and drawbacks, but so does staying with the status quo, doesn't it? So if you're yes. a leader or a manager, you can't just reject ideas because of drawbacks because you're not you're not comparing them with the drawbacks of doing nothing. Correct. Correct. I have a beautiful decision-making tool that helps people. I get a A4 sheet of paper divided into four parts. On the left-hand column is benefits. On the right-hand column is drawbacks. So the top quadrant is benefits of staying with the status quo. On the right-hand side is drawbacks of the status quo. On the bottom left quadrant, benefits of the change. And on the right-hand bottom quadrant, drawbacks of the change. And you look at the drawbacks of 
status quo, drawbacks have changed, then you can make an informed decision. I use the same decision-making tool when somebody asks me, should I change my job? And what happens when people are thinking of responding to a headhunter, what they focus on is the drawbacks of the existing job and the benefits of the new job. They ignore the benefits of the existing job and the drawbacks of the new Mm. job. Mm. Yeah, that's right, because they're just comparing where they are and what's wrong with it and where they're going to and what's right with that. Yeah, and, and most people are so consumed with what's wrong with a particular issue, they cease to be conscious of the benefits, or they stop focusing on the benefits of their existing job. You know, in, in Australia, we're renowned for this. Your life could be magnificent, but you have a sore toe. All you can focus on is the sore toe. Mm-hmm. My work involves helping people change their focus from the negative from the fear to the wonderful benefits, the wonderful contribution that each one of us is able to make. There's another big idea I want to share, Gihan, that that changes lives in the same way that finding your passion does. I have found that many people are unhappy. In fact, I would suggest to you that most people I come in contact with are unhappy or certainly not happy most of the time. Mm -hmm. Now, why are people unhappy? Because the truth is they've got problems. Now, I'm a big fan of Buckminster Fuller, a man who was awarded 47 honorary doctorates before he died in 1983. And I learned from his work, his philosophies are a big part of the work that I teach, I learned from him that as a human being, your reward for solving problems is not peace or happiness or joy or satisfaction Your major reward as a human being for solving problems is bigger problems. (laughs) The better you get, the bigger will your problems become. And the best example of that is Malcolm Turnbull. He wanted to become the Prime Minister. He's become the Prime Minister. Do you think he's got bigger problems now than he had before? Yep. Barack Obama, you know, the, the next President of the United States, their big problem now is to get elected. So the new President gets elected is that new president is going to have far greater problems than they presently have. That's the human journey. And as soon as you stop thinking that you're supposed to not have problems, life again magically changes. You're passionate, you've got an idea of what your life might be about, and you don't walk around unhappy because you've got problems. If you had no problems, your life would be miserable. You would create problems. So... Is it just simply a matter of being aware of that, Charles, and saying, I'm really glad I've got bigger problems because that means I'm I'm progressing? Or are there practical things that you need to do to be able to make that mental switch? Excellent question, Gihan. I can tell by that that you've spoken to many people who who have given you the answer, and I will give you the answer again. The secret to life is consciousness and awareness. When you become aware, when you wake up, when you stop sleepwalking, life changes. And that awareness of what this gift is that we have means you wake up in the morning feeling love and joy and passion. Enthusiasm comes from the Greek words en and theos, meaning inside God. Mm. That state is how we can be purely through our awareness. We don't need a certain amount of money in our bank account 
to, to achieve this state. And there are so many teachers in the last 10,000 years of human history who have said this, and most people think it cannot be so. And my promise to you is that it is so. Okay, great. So we've touched some really big ideas here, Charles, and, uh, and that's fantastic because I think it gives guidance to um, leaders and managers as well as to employees in the workplace or team members who want to make a difference. Um, a couple of questions from a practical level. Um, I mean, I'm really glad that you mentioned headhunters. Do you find that employers and leaders, managers, are a little bit worried that when they get their employees on the path of finding their passion, that some of them might discover that their passion doesn't align with the organization or the team anymore and they might leave? Certainly. And in fact, that's, that is what I advise. I help train leaders so that they encourage those who cannot be passionate about their work to leave because your organisation will be much better if you let those who are not passionate go to create the vacuum to attract those who are passionate. A very practical story. I did five years of leadership development in the ANZ Bank. John McFarlane was the CEO at the time. He's now been recently appointed as Executive Chairman of Barclays Bank in England. Now, John McFarlane was an excellent leader, and in the five years that I ran these programs, 25% of the ANZ employees who attended left the bank within a year because I said to them, if you're not passionate about financial services, stop doing this. Don't do it. And John McFarlane totally supported that point of view. Wise leaders absolutely support this. Most leaders don't. And that's, that's the journey, that's the education journey that I'm on, Gihan, and, and you, that, that leaders who can unleash the energy and the genius of their employees, they are the more successful companies. For statistical data supporting all of this, just go to the Great Place to Work Institute. Fortune magazine publishes the best places to work each year, and everything that I'm sharing with you is absolutely proven statistically that companies that do this are top quartile performers across all measurements. This is very practical stuff, but it's diffi- It's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Simple, but not easy. Um, another thing that I'm really curious about, Charles, is um, another thing that leaders are responsible for is the reputation of their team, their, their department, the organization. And um, I was smiling when you told the story about uh, acting like children and being like the child who throws a tantrum. And I know that you were using that metaphorically, but now there's so much more scope that if somebody at work does throw a tanty, it doesn't just affect the people in the office and the, the immediate people around them, but with things like social media, which much, with much greater transparency, there's a potential for somebody acting passionately to actually have an impact on the organization's reputation. So how do leaders manage that and control that and make sure that they can still protect the organization's reputation while still allowing people to, to act through their passion? Beautiful. Two words. Trust and transparency. Mm-hmm. Transparency builds trust. Because of that risk that you're talking about, companies take a huge risk when they try to hide the truth because the truth will always get out. And so Jack Welsh in his work, current work with Susie Welsh, his, his wife, they're the two words that he constantly drives. And what I love, Gihan, is that that's what's lay at the heart 
of my work for 22 years. So I'm not jumping onto the Jack Welch bandwagon. What I'm saying is that the, that's the answer to your question. Understand that everything that happens in your organisation is going to become available on social media. Therefore, truth is the answer. And as the Bible says, the truth will set you free. When you start speaking the truth, fear gets reduced. Now, of course, there will be consequences. There will be drawbacks from it. And my proposition to you, you cannot take any course of action that does not have drawbacks. Not possible. Whatever you do, there will be benefits. There will be drawbacks. And my proposition is the more truth and transparency there is, the greater the success because then your people know what they can rely upon. If you're your leader and you say certain things but not all of them can be relied upon, then your team members do not know what they can rely upon. That confusion kills passion. I'll say it again. Confusion kills passion. Clarity, truth, transparency makes us powerful. Yeah, fantastic. Well put, Charles. So thank you for that. And look, I know we've covered a, a lot of topics and I know we've only just barely scratched the surface of what we could cover. Um, I know there are people who are listening to this who would love to get in touch with you and uh, do some work with you. And I know that it's not just you. You've got a team of people. You work all around the world. Tell me a little about the sort of clients you most like to work with, or maybe I should say the clients that you're most passionate about working with. And also, how do people get in touch with you, Charles? Thank you, Gihan. On the second question, my website is coves.com, K-O-V-E-S-S.com. And if you look up Passion Provocateur, you will also find me. My, all my contact details are on my website. The, what, the companies that I work with, what interests me the most is leaders and team members who want to live conscious, aware, successful lives understand the value of passion. So they're not scared to have me come in and shake people's thinking and perhaps cause the loss of people to leave who wake up. And this has included small, medium and large organisations. I have found, Gihan, that people are people. We are incredibly complex and the joy of the work that I do is each person is so interesting. Each team that I've dealt with in 20, over the last 22 years, let alone my 20 years in my legal career, every team is unique or what I call weird. And what I want to do is work with leaders who want to unleash the weirdos in their organisation to achieve weird success, which means above-average success. They're the companies I love working with. Fantastic. Charles, I'm going to give you the last word. Is there any last message that you would like to leave us? Yes. My reward for solving problems is bigger problems. I deserve my problems. I love my problems. And the quality of my problems and their complexity is simply a reflection of my true genius. So, love your problems. Charles Caves, thanks very much. Thank you, Guillaume. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Charles, and as you can hear, he's not only passionate about leadership, but he's also very wise about it. So I hope you did get some actions and ideas that you can take away and put into practice in your, in your professional life and maybe even in your personal life. 
Now, if you want to know what's on the horizon for the future, download my app, Fit for the Future, for your iPhone or your Android phone. And I created this app because many people come up to me after my keynote conference presentations and ask me how I do my own research, what blogs I read, what podcasts I listen to, what books I read, and they want some recommendations so that they can become fit for the future as well. So I created this app. I update it regularly with news, articles, videos, book recommendations, and other resources to help you become fit for the future. It's free and it's ad-free, so head over to the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store and just search for Fit for the Future and you'll find my app there. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I would love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store, in the podcast area. And that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, then check out my speaking topics and workshop topics at gihanspeaks.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanperera.com, where you can find my blog, my newsletter, my podcast, videos, and my free webinars series. They're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course yourself, that you can become fit for the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.